Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Simone Riscala, and you are listening to the Endow Podcast, a conversation not just about the feminine genius in general, but about cultivating your particular feminine genius through the Catholic intellectual tradition and intentional community. Well, hello, ladies and friends. Simone here, Director of Program Growth, and I'm with Claire Dwyer and Stephanie Burke yet again. And we are on chapter four, the pilgrimage to Rome, which is one of my favorite chapters. And this week, Stephanie will be guiding our discussion. Thanks, Stephanie. It's great to be back and talking about, I think, probably my favorite saint again. I just love Therese. So before we jump into this idea of holy daring with what she did um, in the Pope, I, I want to talk about first, you know, it, it, this is a quote from Story of the Soul, and she says, the divine call was so strong that had I been forced to pass through flames, I would have done it out of love for Jesus, right? I think that kind of sets us up to this, um, you know, to this holy daring of hers. And I think it's just remarkable that she's 14 and she's knows so unquestionably that she's called to be a nun. She's called to enter Carmel. And so she's got to break the news to her father, who she knows she's the queen of his heart, his little queen, right? Um, and yet with so much confidence and this, and it goes back to this transition from child to this woman of prayer, this woman of purpose, this woman of call that she'd stepped into, that at 14, she can go to her father and knowing it's going to break his heart, gently, lovingly say, I'm supposed to go to Carmel. You know, I'm being called, right? And, and so it's just beautiful. And what I love is that through his tears, then, you know, he starts to help devise the plan to get her there, right? We're going to go to Mother Superior. She says, no, we're going to go to the bishop. If he says, no, we're going to go to the Pope, right? And um, I just love it. There's, you know, there's this scene that I think um, really sets us up for what does it mean to follow the Lord with abandonment, holy fire, holy daring, right? Knowing I'm on God's path. And I can't let anything stop me. And that's when she's right before the Pope and she gets this glare from the priest that's there that's accompanying them on the pilgrimage. And they're told, you cannot speak to the Holy Father. And her sister looks at her and goes, speak, speak, you know. And and they're just so incredibly, um, just like adult and childlike at the same time. It's really quite a remarkable thing. Um, to be standing amongst all these dignitaries, all these really extraordinary people, big people, big chairs. She even talked about the size of the chairs and everything and how it was totally intimidating. And yet with that holy daring, nothing would stop her. And she begs the Holy Father to not only once, but she begs him three times to give her permission to enter Carmel at 15. So I just think there's something there for us to all really learn as women. Particular is that when we know something to be true, good, holy, and right, 
and and of the Lord, right? If we can connect it to Galatians 5, if we know it's not against faith or morals, but it's truly what's good and right and holy, and we believe that the Lord's calling us to it, then to go forward in holy confidence, right? Um, sometimes, you know, it's just an extraordinary adventure when you start following the Lord with all that you are. And I described it the other day. It's a little bit like running and you're running across a bridge that doesn't have planks on it. And you're running so fast that the Lord keeps dropping the planks right as your feet go down. And you just feel like you're chasing after the Lord. And I think um, we must remember that the Lord's delight is man fully alive. Mm -hmm. He desires us to be fully alive, following his will with that holy daring to follow him to be extraordinary, you know? So that's what I'd open it up with. I like, I think it's my favorite line of Therese when she, she, you know, what does he say? What does the Pope say? Um, you know, he basically says like, just do what your superiors tell you to do. And she goes, Oh, Holy father, if you say yes, everyone will agree. <laughs> like, I think it's so charming. Like, you know, you've got all the power. You could make this happen for me if you wanted to. Come on. Yeah. I love that. That's all I have to say at this moment. I just, I think she's <laughs> just so real. And she like grabs his knees. Like she just goes, she like leans in harder, you know, from the feet to the knees to like the pleading and the, yeah. this is my favorite moment of Therese. He really was taking a risk too, in more ways than one, because of course he could say no. And if he had said no, that would have shut the door. There would have been no more debate because if the Pope had said no, then there would be no opportunity for there to be a yes. But the other thing was that I had read that this, um, the priest that they were traveling with the Vicar General, I'm going to butcher their names, Father Reveroni, Reveroni. He had been told by the, by Teresa's Bishop who ultimately held her future in his hands to watch her during that trip to see if she really did have a vocation and if she was mature enough to enter. And so there he is standing there. And so she's about to break the rules in front of the man who's supposed to report to the Bishop, if she really has a calling. So, you know, there's just a lot of layers there of, of holy audacity and, and of kind of risking it all like for this, for the, in this moment, um, and having the courage to know that it could really go either way for her, but she was putting her future in God's hands. Yeah. I, I think what we can also learn from that, because this could have been, this could have gone terribly wrong, right? You know, what she was doing was centered on love for the Lord. It wasn't sinful. You know, was it impetuous? Yes. Was it audacious? Yes. You know, all of that but it wasn't sinful. And I think that's where, you know, the distinction is. And I I love it because we can learn to petition the Lord. We can learn to go to the Lord in the way that she went to the Holy Father with holy daring. Lord, I know that you desire the good for this person. I know that it is your will that X, Y saved, right? So I'm coming guns blazing, 
I'm pulling out all the stops. I'm going to remind you of their baptism. I'm going to remind you of the holy seeds that you've planted in their souls. Bring them to fruition, right? With this incredible, just holy daring of, if you say, right? And, And I loved that they made the connection of the woman who comes saying, you know, he says, why should, you know, to Jesus that she's a, a Gentile. And he said, why should I give to the dogs what is, you know, meant for those at table? And she says, oh, but even we deserve scraps, you know, the audaciousness to press forward and say, help me, help me, right? And he does so, that that pushing forward of faith, the holy daring of faith completely alive saying, Lord, I know it's your will um, that we all be saved. So I'm giving you all of my fire, all of my prayer, all of my sacrifices for the sake of, you know, the salvation of souls. Mm. So, yeah. I I love how it seems like an Isle of Lucy episode where the papal guards are like taking (laughs) 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 her off and she's crying. But uh, but it was a great picture, right? Like she's just like, Love it. but um, I, I wonder if she drug her feet, right? Exactly. <laughs> like she's there's Celine following behind, like again. I wonder if she played spaghetti, right? Did she play spaghetti? Did she just oh. turn into a puddle? Exactly. That's hilarious. But I, re- I remember my mother trying to like develop this quality in me, you know, if I asked something and she said, no, she, she wanted me, I remember that wanted me to keep asking to like grow that persistence. I really appreciate that uh, about my mother that she, mm-hmm. you know, f- uh, wor- don't be so lukewarm. You have the desire, like, let's, let's see how hard you, let's see if you really want it, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. we have to appreciate too, like the the Pope, not dismissing her, giving her his full attention, getting on her level, and yet he defers to those who have more immediate jurisdiction for her, which is very Catholic. Yes, <laughs> I I could make this really easy for you, but you have a bishop, and he's in charge of this whole decision, and I've appointed him, and I and I in effect in a, in effect defer to him. Yeah. And, you know, it's it, it's scriptural too. like, don't go to the top. If you can go to the person you need to go to and talk to, like, you need to start at at the appropriate level. And the church has these layers of authority in this whole structure. And we obey and we we operate within that. So not that she did anything wrong by going to him, but he just kind of, you know, brings her back down and says, if if it's meant to happen, it'll happen. It'll happen in the order. <laughs> the church has set for these things and in the context that I've already, you know, that we already have. So yeah, the principles, the principle of subsidiarity within the church, mm-hmm. the humility yeah. of Pope Leo, because he was a saint, you yeah. know, his, his humility at that um, didn't need to dole out executive orders. I wonder, my thought is, I wonder when he looked at her, did he know, like, did he receive a word of knowledge that she was going to be a great saint? I mean, I just, cause these are like two saints having this encounter. Was he laughing about this at dinner that night? Like, can you believe what this little girl <laughs> grabbing my knees being dragged away by, you know, I just, I make up that like he chuckled about that later or that he knew. Yeah. Cause he was, he was prophetic, obviously. I mean, 
this is the guy who had a vision of hell and wrote the St. Michael prayer in order that we pray it at the end of masses, you know? I read that. I read that. So later in that same afternoon or whatever, when they're meeting the Pope, then the women went first and then the priests and then the other men. So Teresa's father got to also meet the Holy Father, but he was not there during this scene and he did not see it. So it's his turn and he comes before the Pope and the Vicar General there from Dijon, who's with, or not Dijon, but um, Lisieux, who's with them, says um, to the Pope, like, your holiness, like, this is the father of two Carmelites. But he he does not mention that he's also the father of the little girl throwing the tantrum <laughs> he had just met. <laughs> he just decided to avoid that. Um, but he does introduce uh, Teresa's father as a father of two Carmelites. And I, you know, and I, I, we didn't talk about the sacrifice that he was making. Well, we did, we touched on it, but I mean, this, her father who had suffered so much and lost so much already, you know, had already, I suppose it was this process of continual detachment. He lost his wife, his two oldest daughters. I mean, to enter a Carmelite convent, it really is in many ways a death. Like you will never have this person in your life the same way again. They're for you, but they're not with you anymore. Leonie has has at this point gone to the convent and come back twice. Like who knows what's going on with her? She's trying to make this vocation work. And um and then Therese, you know, like Stephanie said, the little darling is just wants to go. And his heart, like his broken, open ready to give it all heart. Um, I just am so touched by his generosity of spirit. And Mm -hmm. like, I always will bring it back to this contrast with Elizabeth of the Trinity. We can appreciate this when we see in, in lives, maybe even our own lives where there is this grasping sense. So Elizabeth's mother had was also widowed and only had two daughters. And Elizabeth comes and says, I have a vocation. I want to enter Carmel. And her mother says, no, not only no, but you're not allowed to talk to the Carmelites, go to mass at the convent. This subject is closed. I want to hear nothing more of it. So it, you know, parents of saints have different reactions and it just makes us appreciate that much more like her father. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, and he had it. He he felt that call to celibacy. I mean, it wasn't his calling, obviously, but I'm I I again I make up in my imagination that even though he didn't have that call, he had that desire. So that detachment, that sacrifice, but also that understanding of how she must have been feeling, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I think he's, he was, the way she describes him, you know, denotes what an extraordinary example he was to her and how he helped form, you know, her, her own sanctity, right? By his example, because here, by the end, he went from crying to then celebrating the honor it was that, that so many of his daughters had been called to Carmel. He was recognizing that it was an and and I think you know if we go back to this moment of, um, of her her begging the Pope you know and the Pope sends her off and 
And, and she thinks I've surrendered everything to the, to the Lord. I've done all that I know to do. And here I am empty handed. And she, she talks about herself being, she wanted to be the play ball of the Lord that he could do with that, do with her, whatever he wanted to. And he could play with her, you know, or he could set her aside and forget about her or, you know, pierce her and leave her for nothing. Um, he just, she wanted to give herself over to him completely. And so at this point, she's realized he's done this and now he's pierced me and he's left me and I have nothing. I have to be completely surrendered. But that was an extraordinary dying of self that I think is so important for all of us to, to emulate and to understand and to imitate that she said, I begged Jesus to break my bonds and he broke them, but in a way totally different from what I expected. The beautiful feast of Christmas arrived and Jesus did not awaken. He left his little ball on the ground with so much as with not so much as casting a glance at it. And, and there was great fruit that was born in that, right? There's great fruit when we say, I've done all that I know to do. And Lord, I surrender all to you and I give it to you according to your pleasure. Because that is, that's complete surrender to God's divine providence. That's what bears extraordinary fruit. And I think that's really when we start to see um, exceeding fruit born in our lives, when we decide to just do what we can, but in the end, it's his, right? Yeah. And I think that so often we want to like piously jump to the like, well, your will, God, before all that, you know, like it's not sincere. Of course, I'm speaking of myself, right? Like if I'm saying, oh, but your will be done. I'm like, I don't actually mean that. I would like for you to do what I wish. It's only after I've exhausted myself in prayer and have seen enough signs that he's trustworthy. I'm like, okay, now you now I'll surrender this situation to you. I think is is the what I love is the authenticity of Therese. Where she's like, okay, like I've done it, and now, now, Lord, it's it's really up to you. Uh, and then, like you said, Stephanie, like don't leave five minutes before the miracle, as they say, because it is. <laughs> Just hold on. I, I love that. Don't leave five minutes before the miracle. I'm that's awesome. <laughs> I <laughs> my friend Therese, named after Therese, says that all the time. She she calls me, you know, after I've done some hardcore spiritual venting, you know. He's either God or he's not, but he is. So don't leave five minutes before the miracle. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. My own personal little flower. Um but it was actually, I need to tell you ladies about this. Uh, I don't think I've told either of you this. I had this uh, encounter with an atheist on a plane ride and um, to the Middle East. And, uh, you know, 12 hours sitting next to an atheist, you could have a lot of fun. And um, he was telling me that, you know, again, secular atheist guy, um, you know, he's like over the whole I'm paraphrasing like fruits of the sexual revolution and he's very happily single and almost happier than when he was in relationships. And it's this strange thing. And so I, I took that as an opportunity to tell him about how the, in the Catholic church, there's this whole thing called a call to celibacy 
So it's not just a default. It's actually like an ideal. And he was just absolutely unbelievably fascinated. So then I started telling him about my lay celibate friends who evangelized me and all that. Da, da, da. He couldn't believe it. He just couldn't yeah. believe it. I mean, there's so many things we used to evangelize. I, I have never used celibacy before. <laughs> Anyway, I'm going to introduce him to some celibate friends. Let's see what happens. <laughs> Let's see what happens. What happens? Yeah. Well, I don't know how we're doing on time, but you know, I think um, to that end, you know, the greatest surrender is surrendering our self-will to God's will. Yeah. You know, the mortification of our ego and um, what we think should happen. You know, it's, it goes back to that, you know, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him about your plan. And um, so I, I just think it's important that we, we can't overcorrect and mortify ourselves into a state of bitterness and emptiness. Um, that that's not holy. Holy is the giving over of our will to the, to the Lord's will. And to live it joyfully, freely, with holy daring, but always with our eyes on him, um, not on what we want or how we think things are going to be. So, And that's often why God allows these delays and these obstacles, because ultimately, even more precious to him than the vocation of Therese or, or Elizabeth, who had to wait years, not just months, was their surrender. He wanted their will to be aligned with his. And then once it was right, it was like, okay, now that we've got that right, I will open the doors for you to give your life to me now that you've actually given your life to me. Because that's the harder death is the death to mm -hmm. your self-will rather than the death to the world sometimes, right? They wanted, they they thought they knew what it was to die to the world. They wanted to give everything over, but the Lord, first of all, wanted them to give their will. And then once they had, then he opened the doors of the convent and they could leave the rest of the world behind once that, you know, precious part of them had been allowed to die. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah. I mean, I think the thing that makes that bearable uh, is that it's for this, it's for the, the re for joy. Right. It's not because like, oh, just so you know, just want you to remember that I'm God, you know, but but to increase joy, mm -hmm. you know, which is what makes the surrender reasonable. Right. Well, and, and desirable, right? Desirable. It it becomes it becomes completely Marian. Yeah. Because if we if we go back to our lady, the reason we honor and venerate her so much is because she had the free will to say no. Yeah. But she said, yes, thy will be done according to your word. So that fiat, that complete giving over of self brought about our salvation, right? Her cooperation, her, her yes brought about an extraordinary means of salvation that would not have been possible without her. Yeah. You know, so all of this is also very Marian. Yeah. So much to learn. So much. so much in this chapter. I love, I love this chapter and I love that story. Um, 
something else I wanted to share, but I can't think of it right. Oh, I had another interesting encounter. Well, then I suppose we can all say goodbye as the time runs out with a very young girl who has now decided to discern religious life. And she admitted to me that she knew she really did know when she was a teenager, Teresa's age. So I had these two encounters recently and I thought, here's somebody who has the the privilege of growing up in a Catholic context where that's weird, but not weird. And here's this other person that had they grow up in a Christian context, they would have the explanation for what they're actually experiencing existentially. So just fascinating, just all the more encouragement for me to evangelize the gospel because how incredible is it to be that person that introduced this idea of celibacy being an ideal, you know, and he's like, he's like Googling St. Paul now. So how cool is that? (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. May he come all the way in the water's fine. No, I'm, 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 he's on my list. Not that he's a product, (laughs) but (laughs) anyways, anything else ladies before we say goodbye? No. Okay. Well, See you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. If this episode was helpful for you, please consider sharing it with a friend or two. We would also appreciate it so much if you left a rating and review so that more women can discover and endow and our mission to help women cultivate their unique feminine genius. Please also check out the link below to learn how to become a monthly donor to help defray podcast production costs. And of course, if you'd like to talk to me about joining or starting your own endowed group, please email me at simone.riscala at endowgroups.org. And remember, you are the heart of endowed.